Do you remember the hit play Rent came out in 1993 and went on to be a Broadway hit from 1996 to 2008? It came out as a movie in 2005. It has a great soundtrack, and one line from the song I'll Cover You is sort of emblematic of the play. You can't buy love, but you can rent it. I like to use a variation of that line to talk about an interesting feature of modern agriculture. I say, you can't buy the farm, but you can rent it. A little-known fact is that a lot of the land that U.S. farmers tend isn't land they actually own. Instead, they rent it from somebody else. So on today's Pop Agriculture Podcast, I'm going to unpack this interesting situation, the history behind it, who actually owns the land, and what that means for farming. So to start, we need to consider how American farming got started. Going all the way back to the Pilgrims, most immigrants came to the U.S. with the intention of farming. And by the time the United States became an independent nation, around 90% of the people were farmers, numbering around 4 million. Then over the next century, the farming population grew to around 30 million. And while that was dramatic growth, the growth of the general population was faster. So between 1790 and 1900, the percent of the U.S. population that farmed actually declined from 90 to 40 percent. The big increase in the number of farmers corresponded in large part to the Western movement of Americans, and that was greatly encouraged by the Homestead Act of 1862. I'll read you a summary of that from History.com. Signed into law in May 1862, the Homestead Act opened up settlement in the Western United States allowing any American, including freed slaves, to put in a claim for up to 160 free acres of federal land. By the end of the Civil War, 15,000 homestead claims had been established, and more followed in the post-war years. Eventually, 1.6 million individual claims were approved. Nearly 10% of all government-held property was granted to these homesteaders, a total area of 420,000 square miles. So the way that our farmland ownership was established was through this massive transfer of public to private land. And for a long time, farm ownership mostly passed down from generation to generation to the descendants of those original homesteaders. But starting in the 1920s and accelerating throughout the Depression and World War II, the farming population declined even further, so that by 1990 it was one-fourth of what it had been at its peak. And... Today, it's down to something like 2% or less of the entire population. A great many children from farm families chose to move to the cities and pursue more lucrative, less physical careers, and that were also less risky from an economic point of view. And those who continued to farm and who do so today typically do it because they love it. Otherwise, it's just kind of a hard profession with lots of pressures and a difficult business. In many cases, a family member continued to live on the homestead piece, but not necessarily to farm it. And as farm equipment improved, each remaining farmer was able to tend more and more land. Now, some farmers increased their farm size by buying the land from their neighbors who had gotten out of farming. But in many cases, the family that once owned the land would simply rent its land to neighbors. 
For the remaining farmers, it proved to be safer to expand their farming operation by renting land. With the ups and downs of grain commodity prices, someone stuck with a big mortgage payment could go bankrupt in a bad crop year. The farm crisis of the 1980s was an example of when that happened on a large scale. Farmers learned the lesson that it's smarter to rent than to buy. Now, as that trend continued, we've gotten to the point where 40% of U.S. farmland is now rented. And in many regions, that percentage can be 60 or even 80%. So who are the landlords for all that rented farmland today? Well, interestingly, statistically, a great many of the owners are older widows, wives of the last family member to farm the land, having outlived their husbands. And in many cases, the widows still live in the original farmhouse and their children and grandchildren often live in the cities and pursue other non-farming careers. It's not that women don't farm. In fact, in the 2012 census of eggs, there were 970,000 female farm operators. And that number is expected to increase when the 2017 census is published. However, these landowning widows are generally too old to farm. And when they pass away, their families will have several options for what to do with the land. They can sell it and divide the proceeds amongst the heirs, and they continue to rent to other farmers, if any of them still know their neighbors. But probably the most likely outcome is that the land will be put into a family trust and then continue to be rented out through something called a land management company. This way, the family can count on a relatively stable annual income from the land. And they don't have to really know anything about farming or ag commodity prices or regulations or any of that stuff. They just get the income. So there are lots of families across America who came into some money because of their family's farming legacy. And that's obviously attractive for them. But the arrangement is also attractive to the remaining farmers because they can have access to land without taking the enormous risk of a big mortgage. Some farmers tend two or five or 10,000 acres of land. But don't think that means they're some sort of corporate or industrial farms. I've met many who farm on that scale, and when you come to their office, it's usually the kitchen table or maybe an old desk out in the machine shed. As I mentioned, this is all possible because of modern equipment. Most of the farmers today own some of the land they farm, thanks to previous generations and their families either reaching back to the homesteading era, which they would normally refer to as the home piece, or to land that they purchased somewhere along the way. Not very many people just decide to start farming if they don't have some family history of that, and at least some inherited land to use as a base. Those who do start from scratch tend to grow specialty crops on a small scale and often only as a part-time undertaking. Still, the rental market is a far easier way for somebody to get into farming because they don't have to make the big investment in the land. Working through a land management company, much like working with a property management company for your rental home in the city, is an attractive option for the city-dwelling families because the local specialists can find the appropriate tenants who will take good care of the land, but still have the ability to get that landowner the highest rent possible. The land rental market is actually quite competitive because farmers in a given area know which parcels are more or less productive and they want access to the fields that give them the best chance of being profitable. Indeed, the going rental price is a really good indicator of potential productivity. Land values for sale can be influenced by many other things like potential for development. 
but land runs are just about what kind of crop yields are likely. When grain prices go up, rents usually do as well. And when grain prices go down, rents can also drop, but in reality, they usually don't do that very quickly. People say that land rents are sticky. Often the renter is the one who takes the hit in a down cycle, like the one we're in right now. The land can be rented under several kinds of lease arrangements. A farmer might be able to get a long-term lease at a given annual price, but those are kind of rare because the land management companies want to be able to raise rents for their clients during the good times. Another kind of lease is called crop share, where what the landlord gets is a percentage of a given season's results, what yield the farmer was able to get and what price that crop was selling for. Now, after the Civil War, there were some often unfair crop share systems through which Southern landowners got former slaves to rent land for a share of the harvest. The more modern form of crop share is a case where the landlord is sharing some risk with the farmer so that he has both the upside and downside potential. Now, this is a pretty logical way to do things, but not all that common. For lots of families, that rental income from the old family farm is just kind of becomes a committed part of the family budget for college or a home mortgage, and they, they really don't want the issue of bad years. The most common type of farm lease in the U.S. today is called annual cash rent. The lease is only good one year at a time. And one given farmer might end up renting a certain field for many years, but in any given year, he might get outbid by somebody else. While the annual cash rent arrangement provides flexibility for both sides, this probably isn't the ideal for some of the most sustainable farming methods. There are several best practices for farming which tend to improve the health of the soil. And over time, that leads to higher yields and more resiliency for drought stress. These soils also provide environmental services like protecting surface waters from pollution or sedimentation and even sequestering of carbon in the soil. So these are good examples of true sustainability that's best for people, best for the planet, and best for the profitability of the farmer. No-till farming methods, fall cover crops, and logical crop rotations are some examples of these practices. Another one is rigorous weed control so that over time the seed bank of weeds declines and new invasive weeds don't get a toehold. Another good practice would involve being very careful about sources of seed and cleaning equipment between fields so that you don't bring in soil-borne diseases and nematodes. There's one very cool practice that's called controlled wheel traffic. With GPS-guided, sometimes self-driving equipment available today, it's possible to make sure that the wheels of heavy tractors and other things only ever drive on certain strips of the field, leaving 80% or more that's never compacted. And that's very good for building a well-aerated soil, and it's good for the crop, and it reduces the amount of nitrous oxide that's released, a big plus from a climate change point of view. Now, with these practices, some economic benefits can be seen even in the first year of doing them, but a lot of these best practices really only tend to pay for themselves in the medium to long term. In the short term, they can actually represent real costs and risks. For instance, to shift to no-till requires buying special planning equipment, and during the first few years, there can be a higher risk during seedling establishment because the untilled soil is not as dark and doesn't absorb as much heat. Cover crop seed is expensive enough that it, it can stress a grower's budget. 
So unfortunately, in an annual cash rent lease arrangement, a farmer can't know whether he's going to be the one or she's going to be the one to realize the economic benefits from doing some of these sustainable practices. This has made it hard for farmers to adopt all of these practices to the extent that they might like to. For instance, surveys show that most farmers definitely believe that planting a cover crop is a good idea, but only a fairly small percent of the fields actually get tended that way. Now, actually, there are a lot of farmers who are using these sustainable practices like no-till, even though they rent the land from year to year. They just take the risk of having to walk away from that investment. An enlightened landowner could make a long-term arrangement with his tenant to encourage these good practices and share the medium to long-term benefits with them. They might have to accept below market rents initially to help the farmer afford the upfront costs, but ultimately the landowner could end up owning a piece of property that has above market rent potential because the piece of land has higher and more stable yield. This all sounds great, but increasingly the farmland is owned in a rather hands-off way through a family trust. To decide to pursue a sustainability-oriented lease would require getting every co-heir to agree to making that investment and taking some risk. They would probably also have to find a land management company that has the expertise and the right farmer relationships to set that up and, and oversee that kind of a thing. This land ownership issue isn't something I hear about very often in discussions, debates, and critical assessments of modern farming. It's an important topic worthy of attention. There are some Americans living in cities who could help make a difference, and it would be a fitting tribute to their farming ancestors and a constructive engagement with the small remnant of our society that still farms. So that's the story behind the phrase, you can't buy the farm, but you can rent it. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.